clear words, but nevertheless powerful words, for this is the very inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the true living God. But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. So we just read these two verses at the end of Jude's epistle. Again, I think it's, I don't know how many sermons, but quite a few on, on just these two verses because they're so rich. And, and they really are so valuable to us. Uh, remember now, Jude wrote this epistle in order to encourage the saints to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down by the apostles. And, and, and in this, he warns the church of false teachers who come in who are interested in destroying the church through false doctrines. And we need to be careful about that because false doctrine often comes in very subtly and it comes in looking like so much the truth. In fact, remember, uh, I quoted from Irenaeus one time from his book Against Heresies where basically the idea was that he put out is that, that, that the devil never comes and slaps us in the face with raw truth or with raw error. He always guises it up and makes the error look more true than truth itself. And, and so we need to be very careful and walk circumspectly. But one of the other things that can certainly destroy the church is not just through wrong teaching, but through wrong-headed ideas and programs. And so, beloved, whenever you hear of a church that focuses on programs and activities, uh, it, it's, it's time to be careful. Uh, now, is it wrong to have programs? Of course not. Is it wrong to have activity? No, of course not. Is it wrong to have men's fellowships or women's Bible studies or, or youth meetings? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to have church work days or uh, outreach programs or, or to support missionary endeavor? Well, of course not. Those things are all good. Those things are all legitimate. Those are the works of the church. But again, it's when the church is focused on those things. It's often a distraction from being the church, and we need to be careful about that. Uh, you know, you can be so involved with, with various Bible studies and various uh, uh, you know, youth programs or this or this, that that's all you do. And you don't see yourself as being part of the greater body. Or, or, or you can get so caught up in missions and evangelism and outreach that you failed to take care of the sheep of the church. And we saw that in, in some of the church growth programs, right? Where all they focused in was on outreach. That's all they did is talk about outreach while the, the, uh, the sheep were not being fed. An emphasis on activities and programs can be as detrimental to the church's health as any heresy can. And again, it's not that we don't want to do those things, but that's not our primary focus. Our primary focus as the church is to be in worship, is to be gathered together as God's people, worshiping the true and living God. And, and, if, and, and the, one of the reasons why it can be a detriment is because uh, programs and, and, and activities that are being so heavily focused on 
the person, a, a Christian can begin to think that they're only important when they're doing something, when they're always busy. It's, it's doing the activities that make me a Christian and make me mature, you see. Or uh, on another thing, that it can create an attitude where we begin to look at all the things that our church is doing. Look at the Bible studies. Look at the prayer meeting. Look at this and look at this. Look at how many churches we've planted. We're so busy doing outreach. Ah, look at all the things we're doing. But that poor church over there, huh, all they do is worship God. You know, here's the issue that Jude has been warning us about. The devil wants to establish or wants us to establish ourselves apart from our identity and union with Christ. And so he will help us to feel good about ourselves and every form of self-righteousness you can think of. And Jude has been warning us about this. And so we come again to these two key, and I think pivotal verses in his epistle, because in them, here Jude is teaching us what we are to focus on as Christians. Here's how we battle all heresy and all error and all discombunctions in the church. Here it is, three things. Pray in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, and wait anxiously for the coming of Christ. Now, with this, you'd think that after 2,000 years of history, we would not be fighting the same battles that Jude found himself engaged in. But here we are, 2,000 years later, still doing the same battles. What's that battle? Well, the battle really is, uh, is, is a battle of uh, seeing Christianity merely as one of the religions of the world. What is religion? Well, religion can be defined as a system of belief that helps people become better people. That's how it's been defined. Religion makes people more moral. Religion makes people a more loving and kind people. And, you know, you don't necessarily need to have a God for that. Buddhism, Confucianism, uh, some uh, forms of animism are all atheistic religions. They don't have gods. A hundred years ago, Machen and others fought against uh, the liberals who, who sought to define Christianity as, again, another way of developing a worldview that helps them get through the mundaneness and the difficulties of life. And, 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 and in 1932, they, uh, a group of liberals uh, put together a book called Rethinking Missions. Basically, that book states that Christianity really is like any other religion. It's like any other kind of philosophy that can help you. And so the recommendation is, let's put aside the differences and let's just work together. We, let's work together with the Hindus and the Sikhs and, and the Buddhists and the Confucius. Uh, let's work together because we're all working for the same cause. And it's a hundred years later, and unfortunately, modern Christians are, are thinking of the faith in the same terms. Uh, you don't believe me? Turn on the television and, and listen to the television evangelists. They present Christianity as a self-help tool to make you a better you, a, a more successful, happier human being. And that's why Hindus and, and Muslims even listen to them, because they feel positive. There's nothing Christian about that, is there? And by the way, this is why legalism and fundamentalism is so prevalent in so many churches. 
See, uh, Christianity is a relationship, but, but it's easier to have a set of do's and don'ts. Just give me the do's and don'ts. Give me the boundaries of how I ought to live, and then I can be happy. Uh, just give me the boundaries. Give me the fences. Religions have teachings of repentance, and they call men to repentance. And what is their repentance? Well, I, I was a fornicator, and now I'm going to stop fornicating. I was a, a, a thief. Now I'm not going to steal anymore. It's, it's a stopping to do what you were doing. But Christian repentance, biblical repentance, is, is different than that. What is biblical repentance? It's not merely stopping doing the sin. It's, it's clinging to Christ for forgiveness. Repentance, biblical repentance is clinging to Christ. It's turning away from self-righteousness that we're so easily falling into all the time. We, we all have problems with self-righteousness and it's easy to fall into it. But, but repentance is turning away from our self-righteousness to Christ. Uh, it, it's uh, repentance is not seen by how well we perform or how faithful they are to the rules. It's, it's do they love Christ? Are they trusting in him for his salvation? You see, and if, and if we're not that, and if we're not preaching faith in Christ and trusting in him, then we become legalists. And, le- and, and, and that becomes boring. That's why 30% of young people today find the church boring and irrelevant, and they left it. It's not surprising also that, that the majority of evangelicals believe the Bible to be simply a self-help book. And it has the same authority and the same wisdom as almost any other self-help book out there. And it's a sad thing. But listen, folks, the Bible is not a storybook. It is not a book of advice or morality, uh, primarily. It, it is not a self-help book. The Bible, this book here, is God's revelation of how he saves a people from their sins through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible, first and foremost, above everything else, is about Jesus. Now, of course, the Bible has stories. It has histories and prophecies. It has teachings. It has moral lessons. It has moral directives. But again, all these things are there to reveal Jesus to us. In fact, Jesus told the Jews in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come to me to have eternal life. See, those Jews saw the scriptures as, as merely a set of laws or advice in how to live in order to attain eternal life. And they completely missed the fact that it was God's revelation to them of how he would save them through, through his son, Jesus. Unfortunately, uh, here we are today, and, and many people still think of the scriptures in the exact same way. But again, if you look at the Bible as merely a rule book for morality and better living, Jesus says you're going to miss out on eternal life altogether because, again, the Bible is there to point us away from ourself and our self-righteousness. It is, a, 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 it is there to declare that the only hope that you have in this world and in the next is Jesus Christ. 
Now, certainly the Bible tells us how to live and what to believe, but even then, it's all to drive you to Christ, not to promote your own self-interest and efforts. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that in the Bible, it never tells us to do anything without reminding us first who we are. And we find this even in the, new, or in the, in the Ten Commandments, right? The preface to the Ten Commandments starts out how? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, I saved you. God saved you, and because he saved you, now here are Ten Commandments. You see, it's not just giving you Ten Commandments without telling you who you are and how you are related to God. Paul, Peter, John, Jude, all the New Testament writers always give doctrine before practical exhortation. They always describe who you are in Christ before they go teaching you how to live as a Christian. Because again, if the Bible is only a book of stories or advice or laws, I would say, yeah, it's irrelevant. We're living 2,000 years after it was written, or, or even more. And so there are more modern psychological helps for us. There are other books that can pump you up in comfort and encouragement and happiness. And, and, and so the key to finding true comfort and happiness is the realization of what Christ has done for the sinner and of what we are in him as a result of his work. And so again, what Jude is, is pushing us to is to see that Christianity is not first and foremost about action. It's not about doing. It's about being. And our being is in relation to Christ. And so we see that even in the very verse verse where, where there the, uh, Jude calls the saints the called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. You see relationship issues being de- here in, in verse 21, 20, pray in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously, right? Again, these are pointing us to a relationship that we have through Christ. When, when my children were younger, and, and even now from time to time, I, I reminded them that they are Babcocks. You are my children. You have my name. And so your actions outside the home displays family value, displays my character. And I want you to live in such a way that, that reflects well upon the family name. My blood flows through you. My DNA is in you. You act because you are. But what happens if they don't measure up? What happens if they fail? What happens, do they stop being my children? No. They aren't my children because they act in a certain way. They are my children because I have an unseverable relationship with them. Well, here again, Jude is reminding us of something very similar to that, if not the same thing. Praying in the Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for Christ's return are the things that the children of God do. And we should do these things. Why? Because we have a relationship with God. See? Again, we're, we're, we're coming to this place, and we're going to be moving on, but before we do, I, I, this is so important that we see what is true of us. 
that we see that we are the children of God before we move on, you see. It's essential to live the Christian life and being sanctified, knowing who you are in Christ. And so again, while we're waiting for a future event in Jesus' return, we're not waiting to become the children of God. Our being God's children is not some future event that we're waiting for. It's not something that's going to happen soon as we enter into heaven. No. Right here and right now, you are every bit God's child as you will be a million years from now. And again, what does that mean? You are his child. You are in relationship to him. You, you, you have the divine nature in you, therefore live like it. That's what Jude has been arguing for us. Let's consider for a moment the parable of the prodigal son. You'll find that in Luke chapter 15. You know that story. Uh, when the younger son took his inheritance and squandered it all, and as he's living in the pigsty, was that prodigal any less a son? Well, he might have thought so. In fact, remember how he rehearsed what he was going to tell his father? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. I can't be a son. I, I disinherited myself by what I've done. I've acted foolishly. I can't be a son. Just let me be a servant. And he was every intention of saying that as he came to see his father. But remember what the father said? Quickly. Bring out the best robe and, and put it on him and, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and, and celebrate for this son of mine was dead. Ah, but he's come to life again. He was lost, but he's now found. You see, the, the, the point is behavior, performance, appearance don't necessarily determine relationships. Sometimes you may act more like a child than at other times. And on other times, your conduct may suggest that you're not a son. There are those who look and, and act like sons, but really are not. Ultimately, we're not being called to determine our sonship by our conduct. Now, certainly every son, every true son will want to conform to God, want to conform to his word. And they will ultimately seek to be obedient to him as an indication of their sonship, as a fruit of their sonship, as a sign of their sonship. Again, without the desire to be obedient, you, you simply cannot have any assurance at all of your standing relationship to God. But here's the thing, and this is why I'm bringing this out, because we're all inconsistent in our conduct, isn't it? We're all inconsistent. We all stumble and fall, and we all act like devils sometimes rather than sons. And again, while conduct is an important factor, it's not the best indicator. That's why the Westminster Confession wisely and correctly says this, that the infallible assurance of faith is founded not upon what you do, not upon what you don't do, but the infallible assurance of faith is founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. And so we come back to the prodigal, and we, we, he saw nothing in himself to believe that he was any longer a son. 
He understood how his offenses should cause him to be treated only as a slave. And yet, he held on to the character of the father. He knew his father, and his father was merciful. This is an important thing. Christians can and do fall into terrible and even gross sin. And again, sometimes Christians do not exhibit anything that resembles being a child of God. But then the confession goes on to say, even that's the case, they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God or the life of faith, that love of Christ in the brethren, that sincerity of heart, the conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. And, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. Again, what we're seeing from the confession, what we're seeing in the scriptures, that you can never rest even upon your own repentance and look at your own repentance for the satisfaction of sin because even the best repentance is still tainted with sin and error. But you can always rest upon the perfect work of Christ. And even that child that goes deep, deep into sin, he can look up in faith and know that his sins, however great they be, are never as great as the Savior's ability to save. And because you sin, because you sin, doesn't mean that you stop being his child. Again, I think this is a very comforting doctrine. That's why I'm here tonight as we're coming to the Lord's table in a moment. Every, uh, when I was... Uh, early uh, able to go to a Protestant church. I was raised Roman Catholic, and I, I, when I left my parents' house, I was able to go to a Protestant church, and I went to this church where every Sunday there was an altar call. And every Sunday, pe people went up week after week after week. Now, the doctrine of that church was that you could be a Christian one day, you could be a child one day, and the next day not. You can lose your salvation. And the end result was that people were always up and down. One day they were comforted, the next day they were afraid. And there was nothing to motivate them to service because they were so busy maintaining their own souls. But here Jude is saying, keep yourself in the love of God. Remember that you are a child of God. You will always be a child of God. You're so secure that you can never sever this relationship. You may slip up. You may backslide. You may conduct yourself at times as a devil. But though you sin, and sin grievously, if you're born of God, you will always remain his child. And the Spirit will reclaim you in your sin. That's why Augustus Tuplady uh, correctly said in his sin, uh, in his hymn, uh, a debtor to mercy alone, more happy, we'll be more happy, but not more secure, the glorified saints in heaven. Jude is calling, as you see, to look forward to that great day with hope. He's calling you to look with, uh, with anxiousness to the return of Christ because on that day you will be a happier child. You will be a better child, but you'll not be any more a child than you are just now. And with that, Christ's return then is an incentive for Christian living. Jude again knew that we need to set before our minds the glory that awaits us in Christ. 
a glory that Jesus Christ himself now enjoys as the first man to enter to heaven, the first obedient man to enter the high and holy place of God. The, he has a glory that is ours. It hasn't been yet manifested, but it is ours. Today is a day of hardship. Today is a day of battle, of trials, and of humiliation. But glory, glory is coming. Do you remember Joseph had to become a slave and then a prisoner before being raised up to his place of power and authority in Egypt? David had to be persecuted by Saul before he was lifted up as king. Jesus himself went through humiliation and, and crucifixion before he was exalted. And beloved, we must endure humiliation and suffering before we are glorified. But the, but the promise of the scripture is Joseph had the dreams of glory that kept him going. David had the anointing for glory that kept him going. Jesus had the promise of glory that motivated him. We all have that same promise, that same anointing, that, that same promise. And we need to cling to this because the trials and the hardships of this world so severely beat us up that sometimes we don't even know that we're truly a child, right? It doesn't look like we'll ever be glorified. Sometimes we just go through so many things that I, I, you are a child of God. And we need to continue looking to the, the return of Christ where he will claim you as his own and vindicate you before all creation. You must be glorified because you are his child. John says that we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And Paul said basically the same thing in Romans chapter 8. Those whom God called, he predestined. Then he called, he, he, uh, he justified. Then he justified he also glorified God's very purpose for you, O saint of God, O child of God. His very purpose is to glorify you. The glory is the glory of the only begotten Son. We are conformed into his image. And when we see him, when he comes, and when we see him, we'll be like him. And all his glory and all his perfections, that's the guarantee and we have this guarantee that we'll be glorified. Why? Because he is glorified. That's the argument of Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, the, the author there quotes Psalm 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. But here's the dilemma. There's the promise, all things are subjection under your feet. But do you see all things subjected to you right now? You have put all things in subjection under his feet, but now we do not see all things subjected to us. We don't see this glory in ourselves. But the, but the writer goes on to say, but we do see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, and because of the sufferings of death, crowned with the glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You follow the argument? Jesus Christ took on our flesh. He was made like us. He went through suffering. He went through humiliation. He went to death 
they're buried in the, in the grave, but he's been raised, and now he's at God's right hand as a glorified man. And you are guaranteed of that glory because you see him. That's why John says that when we see that we'll be like him when we see him. Jude here is simply affirming that the world doesn't see us in glory. They don't recognize who we are. We ourselves don't fully see who we are in Christ. But we see Jesus. Dimly now, but when he comes again in fullness. And so we must anxiously, anxiously await his coming so that when we see him, we'll be fully like him. And beloved, even though all hell raises against you, and though your tears and, and your anxieties and your hurts make you doubt if any of it's true, look forward to Christ's return. Stand on this promise. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. All the sons of God must be glorified because he is glorified. Again, I, I look around, I, I wonder if it's truly so. God's hand often seems invisible. His wisdom and his power often seem dwarfed by the circumstances of life. But then I read the scriptures and I'm reminded that Christ is coming again. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this one thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. What is the day of Jesus Christ? It's his coming again. That's the day of Christ. When Christ walked on the earth, he didn't look like the glorious son of God. He didn't look like the glorious Lord of creation. Isaiah said of him, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and, and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Like him, our lives in this world is shrouded in weakness. But don't let that weakness, don't let this fool you. He's coming again, and he's ordained that you will be glorified and that your glory will be shown to all. So live in that light. Lift up your head. O saint of God, O child of God, walk in victory, even as you anxiously wait the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.